Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Turn your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. And so we are in a short little book, shortest book in the Old Testament, but it's long on background. And uh, if uh, for those of you that are just popping in, here's an overview chart that you can pick up to see the overview book, overview of the chart and the themes that we're tracing. There's also a map there that you can look at and will help you. You can listen to the lessons, the previous lessons online at wearelifebridge.com. But we're looking today uh, from we, last time we were in Obadiah, we looked at verses 1 through 9. And if you look on your notes there at the top, the theme of the book of Obadiah is simply this, hope for the humble and warnings for the proud. And the first part of the book is about the nation of Edom. And I can't take you through the background of that. Esau is their forefather, and he was the twin brother of Jacob. And there's just animosity and very little brotherly love between these two people, these two brothers, and also, eventually, their two nations. And so we saw that the uh, Obadiah, verses 1 through 9, talk about Edom's day of doom. And it's a warning to the proud. This whole book is about pride. And God makes a promise to the proud, and it's simply this. Pride goes before a fall. And yet, as we look at that promise and that certainty of what happens to proud hearts, we also see that there's hope for the humble. And the hope that we saw was that we need to seek humility before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. If you exalt yourself, He will bring you down. And that's verses 1 through 9. And we saw the cause of it. It was Edom's proud heart. We saw the certainty of it. The Lord God who is sovereign will bring down every proud man, woman, child. It doesn't matter. Proud hearts will be humbled. And we saw the completeness of it. But today we're going to move into verses 10 through 14. And here we're going to see... Judah's day of discipline. The word day is throughout this whole short book. Now, Edom's day is a day of doom, and it's mentioned only once in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says this, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, major city in Edom, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Their pride was bringing a certain and complete day of doom. Day is mentioned once. But when we move into verses 10 through 14, we see that Judah has a day of discipline from the Lord. It's not utter destruction, and it comes at the hands of unsaved nations, but ultimately it's the Lord disciplining their people, for they too have proud hearts. The difference between Edom 
And Judah is Edom is not in covenant relationship with the Lord God, their creator. They are not believers. And therefore, their pride will bring utter destruction because they have failed to repent before the Lord God. But Judah is in covenant relationship. They are his chosen people. They have entered in by grace through faith, through their father Abraham, through their father Isaac, ultimately through Jacob, the twin of Esau. They have entered into a covenant relationship, and so they are in relationship with him. And when they become proud and puffed up, instead of being utterly destroyed, they are disciplined because Yahweh is a faithful promise keeper. Now, look there in your notes. I listed in that chart all the references today. And it's really interesting. It's mentioned 10 times. And it's basically called your brother's day. Edom, your brother nation, Judah, is going to have a day of discipline. And you're going to see it. And how you respond to their discipline is going to determine your destiny. And uh, if you know, if you look there and I try to show it to you there in the words, Obadiah uses five different Hebrew words. It's going to be a day of unexpected misfortune. It's going to be a day of misery. It's going to be, secondly, a day of divine punishment. It's called destruction, and that word destruction means the Lord's discipline, where he removes his people out of discipline for their rebellion. It's also called a day of hopeless tribulation. It's like being in a tight spot with, with no escape. It's like being between a rock and a hard place. It's like being up a creek without a paddle. That's what this word distress means. And it's often used of Jacob's time of trouble in prophecies. It's used of that tribulation, that ultimate pressure, that ultimate discipline that will come to the nation of Israel in the end times. But here it's a historical event where Judah and ultimately Jerusalem are attacked, and it's a day of great pressure and tribulation. It's also called an oppressive disaster. It's, 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 it's a place, it's a day where the nation was hopeless and helpless. They were crushed. They were brutalized. We just heard from our global partner, Richard Lewis, talking about these refugees they're coming from that kind of experience where women are being raped, children are being slaughtered, captives are being taken. It's real world stuff that's still going on in the world today. That's what Judah, that's what Jerusalem was experiencing. They were helpless and hopeless. And it was so severe, this word that God uses, this day of distress, and he repeats it three times in these four verses. It's something that where people are so crushed, they are to be pitied. They are to be shown mercy. They are to be treated with unbelievable kindness because they are so hopeless and helpless. But we're going to see Edom 
due to proud hearts, did the very opposite of showing pity. They pounced on him. Instead of showing mercy, they mocked them. And that is their great sin. And finally, the fifth word that's used for this day of discipline, it's just evil misery. It's evil misery brought about by evil people and yet sovereignly controlled by a gracious God. Now, let me just say right here that this is the mark of true believers. They can see the evilness of this present fallen world, and they can even see it in their own hearts and understand that there is a sovereign God that allows it in his mystery He allows it in his wisdom, and yet he is graciously working his purposes through it. And you're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, that's it's okay. You're not God, and neither am I. I don't always get it. If I ponder the evil of this world too long, if I if I turn inward and look at the fallenness of my own heart too long, pretty soon the world gets skewed, God gets pushed away, and ultimately God gets blamed for the evil. And yet if you will submit to the Word of God, you will see in the Word of God, the blame is not His. The blame is ours. The blame is ours. And the enemy that, and we taught this at camp, the enemy within us, the flesh, the enemy around us, the world, and the enemy above us, Satan and his demons. And through it all, God in his mysterious, mystery, mysterious purposes and his wisdom and for his glory and for the good of his people, he works through that misery to accomplish his purposes. And to be quite frank with you, we're going to see today, he does it also to show the evil, rebellion, unbelieving people of this world, I am always willing to forgive you. I am willing to accept you back. But you must recognize, I am the Lord God, and you are not. Okay? So that's kind of, here we are. So, We're going to divide this up into two parts. Today, we're just going to kind of look at the historical and the background and just be sure we understand what's going on in verses 10 through 14. We'll complete the lesson next week. But let's look at Judah's day of discipline. And I want you to see, first of all, the circumstances of Judah's day of discipline. What are the circumstances that take place in verses 11 through 14? Why did this horrible day of discipline, distress, and destruction take place? Very simply, Judah's unfaithfulness toward their covenant God. Judah's unfaithfulness toward Yahweh, the promise keeper, the I am God, the God who deserves our faithfulness. They were unfaithful to him. And I want to show you just how unfaithful. Verses 10 through 14, most likely, some scholars disagree, take place in 853 through 841 B.C. And it's under the leadership of King Jehoshaphat. Remember King Jehoshaphat? He was one of the good guys, one of the few good kings. 
And he had a son, Jerome, who became king in his place. And under Jerome's leadership, Judah arrogantly believed they could live any way they wanted and Yahweh would continue to bless them. And that, unfortunately, is a common misconception of many of God's people, thinking that once I am saved and I'm in a covenant relationship with Yahweh through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I, my sins are forgiven and I can live any way I want without any repercussions. After all, I'm forgiven. He's my Father. And yet, because God is a promise keeper, you're right. If you're in relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't lose your salvation, but He'll keep His promise to discipline His children. Okay, just like a loving parents do. Loving parents don't look away from disobedient children. They run to them and they discipline them in love. And it is never pleasant when we are disciplined. And our pride is exposed. Our rebellion is revealed. And how we respond to that discipline determines whether, to be honest with you, it reveals whether we're born again or not. Because born again children will respond to God's discipline. And that's what God wanted for the nation of Israel. They proudly believe They could willfully break their promises to live for God and God would continue to keep His promises to just keep on blessing them. So let's look at 2 Kings. Turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 8, 16 through 19, and we're going to look at the unfaithfulness of King Jeroboam. We're going to see what brought about this day of destruction, this day of distress. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. <coughs> Notice what it says in verse 16. Now the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. So by this time, Israel and Judah are divided in two. And at this time, Ahab is the king of Israel in the north, and he is a complete apostate. And northern Israel is hanging by the thread of God's mercy, and they're about to be swept into captivity by the Assyrians because of the great wickedness of Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. They were apostates, full-blown apostates who had turned away from the living God to worship the false God of Baal. So that's the context. But down in Judah, the expectation was Judah should remain faithful in spite of Israel's sins. But notice what happens. Jehoshaphat, being then the king of Judah, Jeroam, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned just eight years in Jerusalem. If you know anything about the kings of Israel and Judah, the longer the reign, the more godly they were because the Lord blessed and kept them and pushed back their enemies. The more wicked the leadership was, the more wicked the nation became under that leadership, the shorter the reign of the king because God would allow pagan nations to move in to discipline 
his people. So notice, he reigned for eight years. Why was his reign so short? Look at verse 18. He walked in the ways of the king of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab became his wife. Okay, talk about poor choice in a marriage partner, okay? Okay, if if you just want to know this man's heart, look at who he chose as his wife. I'm going to marry wicked, pagan, Baal, priestess, Jezebel. I'm going to marry her daughter. And come in, and that also meant you were then in a covenant alliance and treaty with wicked Ahab. Wrong choice for a godly king. And he, be, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, now this is verse 19. This is where the covenant faithfulness of God comes in. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. Why? Because Jerome was a good guy and, and he wanted, you know, he deserved that? No, he deserved destruction. It was for the sake of David, his servant. And was it because David was a sinless man? No, we taught the teens two weeks ago that, that David sinned greatly with uh, adultery and murder and entitlement as a king. No, the reason Judah is spared in spite of their wickedness is given to us. He had promised him to give a lamp to him through his sons always. 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant where God promises you will always have a king. And of course, we know that better king is who? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was yet to come. Definitely not Jerome, because he did at least three things here. He walked in the ways of Ahab, the apostate, instead of the ways of David. He married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and he did evil. In other words, if I could sum this up, for those of you that have been in this study, he chose to despise the covenant blessings of God, just like Esau did. He chose to live for the flesh. And when you despise God's blessings, God brings discipline upon his people. Thankfully, he's a promise keeper. Turn to 2 Chronicles 21. There's more to the wickedness of King Jerome that brought about this day of discipline. Turn to 2 Chronicles 21, and let's look at verses 1 through 7. Here's another Similar report about King Jerome, but it tells something even greater about his wickedness. Look at 2 Chronicles 21, and let's look at verses 1 through 7. Then Jehoshaphat, his father, slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, indicating Jehoshaphat was a godly king. And Jeroam, his son, became king in his place. What would be the anticipation? Godly father, godly son. But each individual, you know, God has no grandchildren in the sense of faith being passed on naturally. Each generation has to choose for themselves. And Jeroam chose poorly. He became king in his place. And he had... Brothers, in fact, six of them, the sons of Jehoshaphat, there they are listed, all six of them. 
All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jeroam because he was the firstborn. So what does Jerome do with this privilege, this, this opportunity to be a godly leader? Verse 4, Now when Jerome had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, boom! He killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. He eliminated any threats to his throne. Most ungodly thing. It's the sin of Cain all over. He murdered It's fratricide. He murdered his brothers. How ironic in this lesson about Edom being the brother nation to Judah. And here we have the king murdering his brothers out of selfish ambition and pride. Verse 5, Jerome was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years. And then it goes on and it says the same things. He walked in the ways of the king of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet, verse 7, there's God's promise keeping again. Look at verse 7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So here God is in this covenant relationship. And even though Judah was unfaithful, the covenant keeping God, the I am God, he keeps his covenant faithfulness, but not without severe discipline. And so here we are. What happens is, The Lord allows, in about 845, somewhere in there, 850, He allows the Philistines and the Arabs to come together uh, in the Arab nations, the Arabian peoples, and form a coalition that attacks Judah and enters into Jerusalem. And that is the day of distress. And Edom, who is right there in the south, is their brother nation, and they're watching this happen. And they add to this day of distress because of Edom's unbrotherliness. Edom's unbrotherliness. So this day of distress was due to Judah's unfaithfulness. But Edom saw their misery and acted unbrotherly toward their brother nation that they were blood-related. So let's keep reading Second Chronicles 21. We see what happens. Look at verse 8. So we see verses 1 through 7 in Second Chronicles gives us the reason, Judah's unfaithfulness. But now we see what Edom does when they are, when Judah's in rebellion. Look at verse 8. In his days... Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king over themselves. So instead of Judah ruling over Edom and the nations as God has promised, in their rebellion, God allows this pagan nation to begin to throw off their rule and be independent. 
Verse 9, Then Jeroam crossed over with his commanders and all his chariots with him, and he arose by night and struck down the Edomites who were surrounding him and the commanders of his chariots. So in his own power he goes and he fights back against Edom. But notice, he fought them off, but he couldn't keep them off. Verse 10, So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libna, which is a semi-Philistine city, it revolts at the same time against his rule. Why did all this happen? The Bible tells you, verse 10, because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. You see what's happening? Do you see what's taking place? The covenant-keeping God won't destroy His covenant people, but He will discipline them severely. And He will keep His promise that when you're unfaithful to Me, I will bring discipline upon you. And I will use the pagan nations around you that you should be ruling over to actually begin to rule over you. And notice then 2 Chronicles 22.1. Here's what I think is happening in Obadiah 10 through 14. 2 Chronicles 22.1. It says, Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, there you go, Ahaziah, his youngest son, Jerome's youngest son, king in his place, for the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jerome, king of Judah, began to reign. Look at what's going on here. When Jerome becomes king, what does he do? kill all of his brothers. Now he's ruling in an ungodly, rebellious way. So the Lord allows this Philistine-Arabian coalition to enter into Judah, enter into Jerusalem, and what do they do? They slay all the sons of Jeroboam. Reap what you sow, judgment from the Lord. And yet they leave God in His grace leaves a remnant for the King David, for the, the, the sons of David, and his youngest son reigns in his place. Now, Obadiah 10 through 14. This is all background to Obadiah 10 through 14. What does Edom do? This neighboring nation, by blood relation to through Jacob and Esau, Edom... In Judah, as Judah is being destroyed. Now, and on an earthly way, we don't see God's hand in this. All we see is Arabians and Philistines devastating the capital of Judah. What does Edom do? Well, look at verse 10. Look at Obadiah. Edom did shameful violence. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob... You will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. Now, when anybody gets judgment, your first question is, what did I do? (laughs) What did I do? Well, guess what? 11 through 14 tells them exactly, here's what you did. Notice verse 11, Edom observed. Verse 11, it says, on the day that you stood aloof, 
on the day that stranger carries, strangers carried off his wealth. Whose wealth? Your brother's Jacob. Who's that? The nation of Judah. And foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. You stood and watched. You didn't lift a finger to help your blood relatives. You observed. Like when you're driving and an accident happens and you slow down, you look, and then you drive away and say, oh, wow, too bad. Okay, glad it's not me. And you move on. But notice what happens. Verse 12, they not only observed, but Edom gloated. Edom gloated in verse 12. Notice what it says. Do not gloat over your brother's day. There it is again. Your brother's day. The day of misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. So they observed and they mocked. They had malicious joy in their brother's misfortune. Do not is mentioned three times. Don't sneer while watching, watching the suffering of the sons of Judah. But then, then they didn't just gloat. There's a turning point. Verse 13. They not only... So they, they observed from afar. And then they moved in for a closer look. To gloat even more, ha, 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 you're down there, you're being destroyed. Look at that, look at that, look at what's happening to them. But then they took an active action, active participation. They looted. They entered the gates and do not, as mentioned three times, selfishly exploit the people of Yahweh in their weakness. And then finally, worst of all, verse 14, Edom murdered. They stood at the crossroads. And that word crossroads is a really critical word. It's a word for a narrow place. So like when a city was under attack, they would be looking, what's our way of escape? We got to get out of here. And usually there was just a narrow way to get out. And what Edom as a nation did is they gathered at that way of escape and they did two things. They cut down the weak and they enslaved the strong. Their own blood brothers. Their own blood brothers. And this not only added to the circumstances of Judah's day of distress, but it's, number two, the cause of Edom's day of doom. This is why Edom will be judged. God causes, calls what Edom did violence. Violence. So here's what's going on. In the book of Obadiah. Look at verses 1 through 9. God says, you have a proud heart. You have a proud heart. And then in verses 10 through 14, he shows them, and here's the proof of your proud heart. You have treated your brother in their misery. And this is the proof. So it says in your notes, what's the proof Edom had a proud heart? It's in how they treated their brother Judah. And guess what? That's how you and I know if I, if I have a proud heart. How do I treat other people that I'm in covenant relationship with? Here's what Edom did. They failed in two ways. Number one, they failed to be their brother's keeper. They failed 
to be their brother's keeper. Remember when Cain killed his brother Abel and the Lord came to him and the Lord said, where is your brother? Not because the Lord didn't know, but he was confronting Cain with his sin. And what did Cain proudly and arrogantly say? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to care about him? Am I supposed to keep watch for him? Am I supposed to love and show compassion to him? And the answer is, yes. That's what the humble people of the humble people of God do. It's only proud unbelievers that fail to be their brother's keepers. What is unbrotherliness? Well, it's simply this. Not treating someone I'm related to physically or spiritually the, the way God says I should. Now think about that. That's pretty broad. What is unbrotherliness? Or if you want, unsisterliness. The idea is, what is it when I fail to act like a brother or sister to those I'm in covenant relationship with? You fail to treat them whether they're physically or spiritually your family, the way God says that we should. Here's what Joel, Joel 3.19 says about Edom. Edom shall be a desolate wilderness because of violence. There's that word again. Violence against the people of Judah. And here's how he describes violence. They shed innocent blood in their land. Turn to Ezekiel 35. Turn to Ezekiel 35, 1 through 6. I've said in this series that Edom is mentioned more time in prophecy than any other nation except for Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. So here's Ezekiel 35, 1 through 6. Here's Ezekiel saying the same thing that Obadiah is saying. You failed to be your brother's keeper. Look at Ezekiel 35, 1 through 6. Verse 1, Moreover, the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, set your face against Mount Seir, another name for Edom, and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste to your cities and you will become a desolation. But why? Then you will know that I am the Lord, not you. I am the Lord. You should be worshiping me and I am going to graciously judge you so that you understand you are not large and in charge. I am. Look at verse 5. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, their distress, their misery, at the time of the punishment of the end. Which I think ultimately points to the day of the Lord, the final tribulation. But what I want you to see is there's this everlasting enmity, this unbrotherliness that this nation shows to the nation of Judah. Because they were not God, uh, because they were not their brother's keepers, they become losers, weepers. That's the second point. Edom became losers, weepers. Okay? 
And why do I say that? Because this judgment comes. Look at verse 10 again. Because of your violence to your brother Jacob, that is, failing to be your brother's keeper, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. Losers, weepers. So you got a choice this morning. Am I going to be my brother's keeper, my sister's keeper, or am I going to be losers, weepers? Because God's doom or discipline will fall upon us. Look at Ezekiel. Keep in Ezekiel 35. Let's read the rest of 6 through 15. Notice what it says. Therefore, as I live, I am the living God, declares the Lord God. And there's the same phrase, Lord God. Lord is sovereign. God is Yahweh, promise keeper. Same two words that Obadiah uses in verse 1. Because I am the sovereign promise keeper, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you. Since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. Reap what you sow. You love to murder innocent people? I'm going to let you be murdered. Okay? I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. I will cut it off from the one who passes through and returns. I will fill its mountains with its slain on your hills and in your valleys and in your ravines. Those slain by the sword, it's going to pile up like, like driftwood. I will make you an everlasting desolation. Your cities will not be inhabited. Then, then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 10, because you have said these two nations, Israel and Judah, these two lands will be mine and we will possess them. Although the Lord was there. In other words, it's my land. They are my people. And you think you're going to possess them? Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, sovereign promise keeper, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them, your blood brothers. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then, then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all your revilings, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate. They're given to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me. I've heard it. I've heard it all. Thus says the Lord God, as all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then, then they will know that I am the Lord. Wow. You know what I walk away from that? God God cares how we treat other people. Even when unbelievers treat blood relatives wrongly, God judges that. How much more when we are covenant people and we mistreat our blood family and we mistreat our covenant family here at the church? How? I mean, this is serious stuff that blows me away. Because we are so apathetic. We are so indifferent. We are so quick to snipe and to criticize 
and to look away from the pain of our brothers and sisters. And God sees it all. God hears it all and says, I'm having none of it. That's how big being your brother or sister's keeper really is. I don't know about you, but that's convicting. Especially as Americans who are so independent, so isolationist, so, hey, I come to church and then I get out and I try to talk to as few people and hear about as few problems as I possibly can because I'm okay, therefore the world's okay. That shouldn't be. So, you may be asking in these last few minutes, what's this have to do with us? Well, I read a lot of the Word of God because for me, when I read that stuff, the Spirit starts working on me. Does it start working on you? But here's the connection. So here's my final point. And we'll get into this more next week. The connection to our potential day of doom or discipline. Here's the bottom line. The Bible, if you are here this morning, I presume on nothing. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer and you're being unbrotherly, there is a day of certain doom in your pride. And if you are here as a believer and you are being unbrotherly to God's people or to your blood relatives, even if they're unbelievers, then there is a day of discipline awaiting you and me. Listen to just some verses. Listen to 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, when I love on Carmen here, a sister I can see, it manifests my love for the God that I cannot see. And if I don't show love and compassion to her, I'm showing that I have no relationship with the one true God who is compassionate and loving to me and to her. Listen to 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, his physical family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So even how we provide for our physical family relates to our faith. Listen to Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So... We've, we need to be brotherly to our unsaved family, but we need to be especially brotherly and sisterly to God's family. Are you with me? There's priorities there. Here's a humbling question for us. Have we truly humbled ourselves before God, before the God we can't see, if we don't humble ourselves before the people we do see? So I just end with three questions here. First of all, am I proud? Am I proud? Do I relate to others with Christ-like humility? This whole series is meant to unveil our pride. Number two, who is my brother? What are my covenant relationships? Think physically, blood relatives. Think spiritually, church membership. Think friendships and neighbors in which you are in relationship with. We'll talk more next week.
Secondly, or thirdly, as you think about those relationships, ask yourself this. Am I unbrotherly or unsisterly? Am I fulfilling my covenant responsibilities? What are my responsibilities in these relationships? And how am I doing? And how is my pride preventing me from being my brother's keeper? And what discipline is the Lord bringing upon my life? If you are a believer this morning, what discipline is the Lord bringing upon my life because I'm being unbrotherly or unsisterly? We'll talk more next week. Years ago, let me end with this illustration. Years ago, the Salvation Army was holding an international convention and their founder was General William Booth, Salvation Army. And he couldn't attend because of physical weakness. He cabled the convention message to them. So he cabled, he cabled to them the message that he would have preached if he had been there. But it was one word. Others. 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 Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Edom. Don't despise the blessings of God. And don't look away from the suffering of your brothers and sisters. You say, okay, how does this really work out? We'll look at that next week. But I pray that this background has been sufficient to begin for you to do what I have done. And I thought about it at camp. As I watched our, our, our young people, our students, show brotherly and sisterly kindness to our two autistic twins who went with us. They loved on them. They cared for them. It isn't always easy. It doesn't come naturally. But we did it. And I like to think that led to some spiritual decisions in those kids. I thought about it as I trimmed uh, for two and a half days. My uh, mother-in-law's trees on my vacation. It was so great. <laughs> but that's what it is. That's what you do. And, and the older they get, your family, the harder it becomes. And the more sacrifice. We'll talk about that next week. It takes sacrifice to show brotherly kindness and love. You have to die to self. And you have to remind yourself, I'm crucified with Christ. And yet here's an act of worship, an act that is work, and an act that is a witness to a watching world that I truly know the one true God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been so gracious to us these past few weeks. I thank you again for the fruit and the work in the lives of our students let it be fruit that remains. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for our family to serve uh, Gwen's mom this past week. And just the physical, relational reminders that we are our brother's keepers because you are our heavenly father. Lord, convict our hearts. Humble us now before our day of doom. Humble us now before our day of distress. 
that we may have joy in repentance and we may receive your covenant faithfulness and forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, love on a brother or sister before you leave.